This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So today it takes a village, and uh, the, um, the last part of the talk will be about a public health initiative that we're doing with um, Grassroots Health and uh, with Select Health of South Carolina, Cindy Helling, and um, also Eau Claire Cooperative um, Health Center in uh, centers in Columbia, South Carolina, with um, Eric um, Schuler and um, Stu Hamilton. As far as disclosures, um, I have um, no financial or conflicts of interest. However, I am going to be talking about an IND that was required by the FDA, number 66,346. That's held by my colleague, um, Dr. Hollis, and that's been in place for all of our trials. And um, you heard about that yesterday. So what we're going to cover today, we're going to build on the presentations of earlier speakers regarding vitamin D synthesis and metabolism, so I'm not really going to talk about that, except how it's different um, with respect to pregnancy. I'm going to cover how vitamin D status um, uh, during pregnancy varies around the globe and the implications of maternal vitamin D deficiency for both the mother and her developing fetus. Um, and in order to do that, I'm going to review clinical trials and some relevant findings. And there are some other trials than what I'm presenting today, but I only have so many minutes. And so selfishly, I'm presenting our data because I know it best. Um, and then we're going to talk about the public health issues that surround these findings. And where do we go from here? Um, and then, um, as I mentioned, we'll talk about the lactation results. So vitamin D in pregnancy. Why do we even care if a woman is vitamin D deficient? Well, all of you in this audience would care because you're here today. But there are, I would say, hundreds of thousands of people in the United States who don't really care. And they don't see the importance of it. Um, yet, if you think about physiology and you think about health, then I think you start to understand that really there, there is a reason we should care. Uh, vitamin D, as you know, is a pre-pro-hormone, and it affects metabolites that, as we've seen, go well beyond bone and calcium metabolism. And this is also true during pregnancy. And we've seen just you know countless epidemiological studies that link deficiency with a whole host of inflammatory and long latency diseases which i list here but not going to go into so the role during pregnancy we've ignored we've absolutely ignored and we have been complacent and thought that for decades and, and more that 400 international units a day in a prenatal vitamin is all she wrote um, yet we know that there are immune modulator um, implications of vitamin D status, and we are also just beginning to understand this concept of um, developmental origins of disease. And we are really starting to focus on how um, the milieu, the environment in, in during fetal time impacts our health for the rest of our lives. And we've certainly seen that from wonderful studies in Sweden. And so the um, epigenetic aspects of early development we're only just beginning to realize. 
So from our Thrasher cross-sectional study that we published in 2011, um, what we found, not surprisingly, was that um, age and gravidity during pregnancy were not um, associated with um, maternal vitamin D status. Seasonality, there was a trend, but not significant in the model. So these were women who, about a uh, 500 and some women who lived in Columbia, South Carolina, or Charleston, South Carolina. So that's latitude 32 degrees north. And so we see less seasonality than we would expect, because if you don't go outside, why would it matter? BMI, again, was important. And so you can see that those who had a BMI greater than um, 30 or more, they were 2.2 times more likely to have a 25 OHD level less than 20 nanograms per ml. If you were African American versus uh, white, you were about 20 times more likely to have a level less than 20. And if you were Hispanic versus white, you were 2.4 times more likely. So that um, was 2011. But let's go back a bit. And really, with the exception of um, maybe Dr. Hollick and Dr. Hollis, they were just, a, and, and Dr. Haney, they were just a very few people who, um, scientists and um, physicians who were really concerned about vitamin D status. And this was a study that was published that came out of the CDC in 2002, and it was really a wake-up call that really hypovitaminosis D was much more prevalent um, than we thought. And this was uh, women in the NHANES uh, 3 survey, 1988 to 1994, that showed that 42% of African-American women in their childbearing years met a very conservative definition of deficiency of less than 15 nanograms per ml, and um, compared to 4.2% of white women. If you applied the data for today, you would, or the, the threshold that the IOM um, has of 20, you would see much higher uh, prevalence. Around the globe, um, what you see here um, is in blue. So what you see here is um, the blue would be profound deficiency, and then the green is um, so 20 using the Institute of Medicine. And you see that this is for um, white women and Canadians, of course, latitude effect, Australia, we know, uh, the UK, um, much more um, deficiency among black women. And then we go to places where um, your um, religious uh, practice clothing impacts on maternal vitamin D status, and we see profound deficiency, not only deficiency of you know, less than 20, but profound, less than 12. And um, so it's not just in the United States, it's all over the world. And then we studied over 1,000 women in South Carolina, and there we were, you know, 32 degrees north, um, and what we, we see, what we find in, you know, globally, um, you see here, um, is recapitulated. So um, these are levels of, so blue is less than 20, the Institute of Medicine. At the time when we did the study, we considered um, so a level of 80, man oops, sorry, 80 nanograms per ml and um, as deficiency. And again, so um, Caucasian women, 22% um, were deficient 
insufficiency, three quarters. African-American women, um, about 75, 74%, depending on the cohort. And virtually all the women are either deficient or insufficient, a third of Hispanic women. And then overall, you see 50% of the women met the Institute of Medicine's criterion for deficiency. And if that is not a public health issue, I don't really know what is. I think it's deplorable, actually. And we have um, become complacent. Um, you know, I think we just, it's, it's easier to be that way. So the take-home message from earlier studies, people were doing, um, you know, they recognized that there were these deficient women. It was thought that <clears throat> it was just the extremes. Um, so if you um, immigrated from um, the equator to more northern latitudes, um, and you had darker pigmentation, that you were the ones who were at risk. And um, again, it was the adverse effects of this um, condition of, called uh, vitamin D deficiency was thought to be an extreme of a continuum. And there were various dosing regimens of 1,000 international units a day or sporadic dosing of 60,000 or even 120,000 once or twice during the last half of pregnancy. And not surprisingly, these regimens did not achieve sufficiency in the majority of women. Um, people were left wondering what was optimal. There was a Cochrane review that was done in 1999-2000. It concluded that there was insufficient data to make any conclusions. Sadly, that same recommendation was um, the case in the uh, World Health Organization Cochrane review that was published in 2012. Um, so... There's a host of epidemiologic data, and just quickly, um, people have mentioned um, higher risk of maternal preeclampsia. Um, those are cohort studies. Um, increased risk of gingivitis and periodontal disease in the mom. Impaired fetal growth at the extremes. Um, impaired dentition in the offspring. And increased risk of RSV based on your cord blood level. So respiratory syncytial virus, so that's a, a can be a pretty deadly um, respiratory infection in the first year of life. So we were wondering, and Dr. Hollis and I started working on vitamin. He had been working on it for decades, and I joined him in 2000, and um, we were able to receive funding from NICHD in late 2002. We were required to get an IND for the first time in the history of a vitamin in 2003, and we required additional IRB approvals. Um, so our study started in January, January 6, 2004. It was a momentous occasion for us. And we completed the trial July 2009. That was um, the data analysis took a long time, and we published our first paper in JBMR 2011, and then we had the health outcomes paper 2013. Um, the trial consisted of three treatment groups, so, um, and we were mandated by the IRB that if a woman's level was less than 40, she could be randomized to either 400, 2,000, or 4,000 international units a day. If her um, 25 OHD level was between 40 and 60, she could only be randomized to the 400 or 2,000 IU group because there was real fear that we were going to make these women toxic and that vitamin D was a teratogen. 
And certainly if a woman had a level greater than 60, I mean, we're talking about 2003, you know, 2003 when this went through the IRB, she could only be on 400. We had only one uh, woman who met that, um, who was in that group, and she was a, she was a sunbather. And we had 23 women in the 40 to 60 group, three of whom were African American, and um, the rest were white. And so the the um, rest of the 350 women who completed the trial were able to be randomized to the three treatment groups. The primary outcome was to determine the most effective and safe, and we had data safety and monitoring oversight quarterly, um, and to to see what um, dose was the most effective and safe to achieve vitamin D sufficiency, which we defined a priori as 32 nanograms per ml or 80 nanomoles per liter. And here are the results, and what you can see is a dose effect across the racial ethnic groups. We were substratified by uh, race ethnicity. And of course, um, you can see that the 400 IU group in the African American, so that's the um, blue, is 400, so um, achieved just about 20. And this is the Hispanic and Caucasian, and then these are the 2,000 and 4,000. So there was a dose effect. One of the other things that we saw was that, um, and others have reported, 125-dihydroxy vitamin D during pregnancy is a paradox. So during pregnancy, early on, very early on, that um, hormone will more than triple um, what it is in the pre-pregnant and post-pregnancy states. So in a non-pregnant individual, those levels that we see in the pregnant women would be toxic. Um, you would have hypercalcemia, you would have certainly hypercalcemia. And um, while 125 is synthesized by placental decidual cells, the main source is the kidney. And also, the 1-alpha-hydroxylase the one is actually released from control of PTH during pregnancy. It's independent of the calcium homeostasis. So you see very normal calcium levels in these women, despite amazing levels, which I'll show you a graph of that in a minute. And so PTH is not driving this massive vitamin D metabolism normally that's normally seen in pregnancy. So what's its role? We speculate that it has to do with tolerance, so preventing the rejection of the fetus graft versus host type of thing. But there are many unanswered questions. And you can see here um, that uh, on, along the x-axis is 25-hydroxy vitamin D concentration, and this is in nanomoles per um, liter and 125 in picomoles per liter. And what you see is um, that first order becoming zero-order connect kinetics in the saturation curve, and there's an inflection point right around um, 100 um, nanomoles per liter, which is 40 nanograms per ml. And this level of, is required to optimize the 125 um, production, which had not been appreciated before. So from this um, NICHD randomized control trial, treatment effects on circulating 25-OHD in the offspring, of course, we saw a dose effect, which I list here. And um, again, it um, re 
reestablished that maternal 25-OHD correlated with neonatal cord blood, which is representative of fetal, with an R value of 0.77. So highly related. So basically, mom status predicts uh, fetal and uh, neonatal status. And then the other um, interesting point that... um, Bruce is always having to tell me and teach me. But if you look at the association, and I'm sorry this isn't projecting very well, um, but you look at 25 OHD and um, 125, and you see in, actually this would be in in infants um, all the way through the lifespan, except um, during pregnancy, and but in the fetus, so this would be cord blood, what you see is a tremendous, um, the R value. So there's, it's a linear relationship between 25 and 125. And it's not seen any other time during the lifespan. And it really is unclear why that is, um, but I show it to you because it's certainly something um, that um, warrants future research. We also had to look at adverse events throughout our study, and it was really very um, reassuring that there were no differences between the treatment groups. Now, we were blinded, um, so there were no differences um, between the treatment groups on any of the measures. And again, this was um, overseen by our Data Safety and Monitoring Board. Um, No differences in serum calcium, creatinine, urinary calcium, creatinine ratios. And there was not a single event that was attributed to vitamin D supplementation by our Data Safety and Monitoring Committee. And then we also ha- we had to report every every adverse event, and so every adverse event had to be reported, and we had to analyze that. And what what we found was that there was a trend where lower rates of complications um, existed in the 2,000 and 4,000 IU groups compared to the 400 group. And looking at safety, there were higher rates of comorbidities of pregnancy in 400 and 2,000 versus the 4,000. So when we combined all the comorbidities, so any infection, preterm labor or preterm birth, less than 37 weeks of gestation, gestational diabetes, and hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, which includes preeclampsia, and HELP syndrome. What we found was that there was a clear difference um, between the treatment groups. And then we, at the same time, um, maybe a little bit two years later, we started a community-based research study uh, that was funded by the Thrasher Research Fund, and that took place at Eau Claire Cooperative Health Centers and um, at Northwoods um, Community Health Center. And these were women, involved women, who were living at or below the poverty level. And um, they were less than 16 weeks of gestation. And I might add, too, um, in my haste to get through this, um, our NICHD trial, the women had to be less than 16 weeks, so they were enrolled at 12 to 16 weeks of gestation. In this case, um, we weren't able to, um, you know, get levels right away, so we had a one-month run-in dose of 2,000 international units a day um, for the first month, and then they were randomized to either 2,000 or 4,000 that they took throughout pregnancy until delivery. And they were also monitored for hypercalcemia and um, monthly and bimonthly for hypercalcemia and a change in renal function, creatinine. And then, um, 
What we um, found in this study, um, which supported our NICHT trial, was that 2,000 and 4,000 during pregnancy were associated with improved maternal and neonatal vitamin D status. Now, you might wonder, why wasn't there a control group? And in this case, the women were so deficient that it was thought to be unethical to randomize them to 400. So they were randomized either to the 2,000 or 4,000. Compared to the 2,000 IU group, the overall rate um, of increase of 25 OHD per month was greater in the 4,000 IU group. And compared to infants in the 2,000 IU group, the infants who were born to moms in the 4,000 IU group had better vitamin D status. Safety outcome, just like what we saw in um, the NICH3 trial. But we also, these women were... um, Uh, more at risk. Um, They were more deficient. We saw a reduction in the risk of preterm labor and preterm birth, which persisted even after controlling for race. So for every increase in 25 OHD level by 10 nanograms per ml, the preterm birth risk decreased by half. And for every increase in a 25 OHD level by 10 nanograms per ml, the preterm labor or birth decreased by 28%. And as I mentioned, there were no adverse events associated with vitamin D supplementation on any parameter, looking at serum calcium, phosphorus, creatinine, or urinary calcium creatinine ratio. Then we combined the trials. Um, We had um, the data sets from the two trials using a common data dictionary, And as I mentioned, in the NICHD trial, women were randomized to 400, 2,000, or 4,000. The Thrasher, they were randomized to 2,000 or 4,000. And they had drugs from the same manufacturing lot. The studies were administered using identical questionnaires to produce comparable sociodemographic and clinical characteristics. The outcome measures were maternal and neonatal 25 OHD achieved, And we also looked at maternal comorbidities, so hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, um, any infection, preterm labor, and preterm birth without preeclampsia. And what did we find? There was an association between the comorbidities of pregnancy and final maternal 25-OHG, even when that persisted even after we adjusted for study and race. So on average, um, it was the same kind of thing. On average, a woman, a group of women with circulating 25 OHD levels, 10 nanograms higher than those of another group, reduced their odds of these combined comorbidities compared to women with lower 25 OHD levels. So having a higher level reduced your risk of an adverse event during pregnancy. And then we had a priori had um, thought that 32 nanograms per ml would be what was sufficiency. And so we looked at these different comorbidities of pregnancy, gestational diabetes, um, birth less than 37 weeks, which is the definition of prematurity, preterm labor and or preterm birth, Uh, preeclampsia, hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, any infection, and any comorbidity. And what you see, of course, is that if you achieved a level that was at least 32 um, nanograms uh, per ml or greater, that your risk of these diseases was less and achieved statistical significance with preeclampsia, the hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, any infection, most of which were bacterial vaginosis, and again, any comorbidity when you combined all of them. And then um, what 
um, Carol Baggerly and Sharon McDonald helped me do um, in grassroots health. Um, we really looked at the data and and you know Carol said, "Gee, how does this compare with um, the March of Dimes rates in South Carolina?" And so um, we looked at that, and what you find is that um, in the women who achieved a level, median level in this cohort of 95 nanomoles per liter, which is 38 nanograms per ml, um, you see a a risk reduction. So the South Carolina, we have one of the highest rates of premature birth in um, the country. We get a rating of D, so it's A through F. And um, some people say thank goodness for Mississippi, but I don't um, see it that way. And what, so what you're seeing here is that in Hispanics, uh, 12.6% rate of preterm birth um, compared to our cohort. um, And so for each of the race ethnic groups, you see that our women who achieved a level of at least 38 nanograms per ml or greater had a lower risk. And then if you see that the frequency distribution, this is combining both the NICHD and the Thrasher, so 509 women in whom we had um, data. Um, And what you find is in orange, the preterm birth, so that's less than 37, and in red is the very preterm birth, so less than 32 uh, weeks of gestation. And you see that there is really... Um, preterm births were 51% lower in those with a 25 OHD that was at least the median. And you can see by the um, graph here that um, the, the births, um, the preterm births are skewed to the left. And you can see that here, so six out of seven very preterm births, remember that's less than 32 weeks, were below the median of 38. Um, and 33 out of the 50 preterm births were below the median. So that was 66%. And that is certainly something that I think, in my mind, is provocative. Um, and then once again, if we looked at um, women who were either had some pregnancy-induced in, hypertension, so it could be preeclampsia, it could be help, or... Um, gestational hypertension. What, again, you see is that there is um, a cluster of women um, where if they are, if their level was 40 or greater, um, their risk of um, hypertensive disorder of pregnancy was lower than those who were less. And if you achieved a level of 50 or greater, um, you had a lower um, risk as well. Although that... um, did not reach statistical significance. Um, so the post hoc comparison of vitamin D status at three time points during pregnancy, we looked at that because um, some people say, well, is the die cast? If you are deficient at birth, I mean at birth, if you're, if you're deficient at conception or in the first trimas- trimester, does it really matter? Can you s- salvage those women? Can you rescue the women who are deficient? Many of our women don't come for prenatal care until the beginning of the second trimester. 
So if you have a woman who comes at 16 or 18 weeks of gestation, can you impact that woman's health? And so what we did was, um, again, Grassroots Health, and this um, paper is just um, in press on the Journal of Steroid Biochemistry and Molecular Biology um, this month. And um, so what we found was that 25 OHD levels that were closer to delivery were more strongly correlated with gestational age at delivery than earlier values. And you can see the R values. Um, doing a logistic regression with preterm birth, um, less than 37 weeks as the outcome, and looking at 25 OHT quartiles as a predictor value va variable. Um, at baseline, those who had a serum concentration of less than 20 nanograms per ml had a 3.3 times um, of odds of a preterm birth compared to those whose level was greater than 40. And second trimester, the odds were twofold. And at the end of pregnancy, closest to delivery, the odds um, were highest at 3.8-fold. So the major findings from this exploratory analysis were that maternal vitamin D status closest to delivery date was more significantly associated with preterm birth, suggesting that later intervention as a rescue treatment may positively impact the risk of preterm delivery. And I think that's important because not everybody, as I mentioned, gets their um, prenatal care right at 8 or 12 weeks. And that the serum concentration of 100 nanomoles per liter, which is 40 nanograms per ml, in the third trimester was associated with a 47% reduction in preterm births. So that leads us to, I think, some substantial data to suggest that, at the very least, our women who are pregnant should attain an optimal 25 OHD level to, um, again, driving 125 of 40 nanograms per ml, and that um, we can't be complacent and just wait for other people to um, realize that 50% um, of the women in sunny South Carolina don't even come up to 20, and you know, we saw in the 350 women who completed the trial that only 24 women even had a level um, of 40 or greater out of the 350. So our research suggests the potential of really impacting on preterm birth and perhaps, um, you know, um, hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. And that this 50% reduction in preterm births when the vitamin D serum concentrations are at least 40 nanograms per ml if they're attained. Um, if you look at the March of Dimes in South Carolina, the rate of premature births, there were about 8,000 premature births um, in, in the state in that year. And I'm a neonatologist, so I can tell you that there is... Um, mortality and the morbidity and the cost for these um, babies um, is, is tremendous. So this is trauma. And it may have been prevented in 50% or 4,000 infants with a vitamin D supplementation in place. I think that the, the risk of preterm birth, of course, is multifactorial. So, um, but even if we can impact on a quarter of these um, deliveries and these pregnancies, that 
it would be substantial. So based on these findings, we are now um, have established a Protect Our Children Now public health campaign that's starting in South Carolina. And it will... Um, Monday. Yeah, Monday. <laughs> and um, it's going to really, um, what we think is going to, it's designed to translate uh, scientific studies into clinical practice, allowing for the creation of a defined and tested plan to implement in any community. So the major aim of the project is to provide a living system that is scientifically accurate while also remaining flexible to procedural changes that may need to occur to accommodate populations, circumstances that will achieve vitamin D sufficiency, and optimize maternal and fetal health during pregnancy. The expected outcomes of the project we're going to demonstrate with 500 pregnant women um, that the pregnant women attainment of 40 nanograms per ml, that's the goal, the goal, gold, <laughs> goal, demonstration of effect. Um, we also are expected outcome is to change clinical practices to include vitamin D testing and supplementation in standard, standard prenatal care through education of clinicians and patients about vitamin D in pregnancy. Engagement of participants in their, their own health demonstrated by participation with a case coordinator and involvement with a new interactive online system. Definition and implementation of payment methodologies with the insurers, so you have to get the insurers on board, and some of them get it, um, to establish billable fee structures that would sustain the program beyond the grant period, and publication and dissemination of results of the project for public health implementation. And the start date, um, we're, we're in the planning phase, so we have a three-month ramp-up where we're going to then start enrolling um, patients April 2015 in Charleston and Columbia, South Carolina. It's a two-year project, and again, the goal is educational modules and sustainable metrics that will lead to maternal and fetal improvements to have lower rates of vitamin D deficiency across the state lower rates of preterm birth, demonstration project that would be feasible throughout community health centers throughout the United States, and absolutely essential is sustainability. Since um, a few people had mentioned about the study, uh, it's our NIACHD vitamin D lactation summary data. And so as you all would appreciate, the first 1,000 days are really important um, for development, and that it includes uh, vitamin D status. And as we really saw, when a woman is deficient in vitamin D, her developing fetus is deficient. And similarly, a lactating woman who's deficient in vitamin D provides breast milk that is deficient in vitamin D. So therefore, unless her breastfeeding infant is supplemented, her breastfeeding infant will be also deficient. Um, observations in the 1980s. Um, Really, we, again, what I showed before was that vitamin D obtained via transplacental passage of 25-OHD from the mother, and there was a 0.7 to 0.8 correlation between maternal and neonatal 25-OHD concentrations. And there was also an emerging observation in the 1980s that breastfed infants were at higher risk of developing vitamin D deficiency than those who were formula-fed, and, of course, we had a resurgence of rickets. 
We also know um, with improved techniques in the laboratory that um, in the 1980s, um, Dr. Greer and Hollis in that group measured um, painstakingly vitamin D concentration in human milk and found that in this study, um, women who had been um, had minimal erythemal dose of um, of UV, um, they measured about 70 international units of antirichetic activity compared to what you see in a liter of formula, which is 400 IUs, which is roughly the amount you find in one teaspoon of cod liver oil. And um, the women who were tested usually are higher latitudes with limited sunlight exposure. They certainly weren't members of the Maasai. So it was just, <clears throat> it was just basically what was published was just, um, you know, you're finding that um, women who had marginal vitamin D status, and then we say, ah, oh, yeah, that's, that's what's in breast milk. So how could that be? I mean, did we really evolve that way? The women who had marginal vitamin D status would have diminished amount of vitamin D in their breast milk. And conversely, we certainly thought that if women were replete in vitamin D, that um, in turn she would have um, more transfer of vitamin D in the breast milk, and that would provide ample vitamin D substrate for the recipient breastfeeding infant. We had two pilot studies that were published, the first in 2004 and then uh, another in 2006, where we showed that women who had mar marginal vitamin D status 400 had diminished amount of vitamin D in their breast milk, absolutely. But when in these um, pilot studies we did 2,000 versus 4,000 and 400 versus 6,400, the women who had 6,400 IU a day um, had enhanced transfer of vitamin D in their milk and providing ample vitamin D sub substrate for their recipient breastfeeding infant. But that was a very small sample size. So we had a study that was funded by NICHD that took place between 2006 and 2012 with the objective to assess the safety and effectiveness of maternal vitamin D supplementation of 2,400 versus 6,400 compared, that was alone, just supplementing mom alone compared with maternal and infant supplementation of 400 IU a day. And we hypothesized that 25-OHD resulting from maternal supplementation with 6,400 IU a day without, without emphasizing that infant supplementation would be equivalent to maternal and infant supplementation of 400 IU a day with no differences in safety. And certainly 6,400 would be superior to 2,400 IU. Methods, I don't really have time to go through that, but it'll be on the website. There were the three treatment groups, and we were blinded, and we had all the safety measures that I spoke about for the pregnancy study. The results, the 2400 IU arm study ended in February 2009 as there were a disproportional number of infants in that group that met the Institute of Medicine's definition of deficiency, less than 20 nanograms per ml at four months. So 31% in the 2400 IU group compared to 5% in the 400. Remember, 400 IU group was getting supplementation, and 6% in the 6400 IU group. By month two of treatment, there were differences in maternal 25 OHD between the control and the 6400 IU groups that were sustained to seven months postpartum. When you did a multi, um, a, you know, regression analysis, when you controlled trying to predict 25 OHD, and um, you controlled for 
treatment and um, race and um, latitude, site, and so forth, and BMI, um, 6,400 was the most significant independent predictor of maternal vitamin D status. There were no differences, and I repeat, no differences in infant 25-OHD by treatment group, and that's shown here. Um, You see maternal at the top, where, of course, there's a dose effect. So 400 in the light blue, dark blue is a 2,400 IU group, and 6,400 is in the dark blue. And then you see the infant below. So what you see is... Um, really difference in the 2400 because the baby was getting less substrate from the mother, but there was really no difference, no statistical difference um, in the levels between the babies who got 400 IU a day compared to those babies who did not, but their mothers were supplemented with 6400 IU. And then by race, uh, ethnicity, that was also the case, um, and that will also be on the website. So conclusions from this trial were that maternal supplementation was 6,400 IU a day of vitamin D alone during lactation without infant supplementation safely improved maternal vitamin D status during six months of full lactation. Infants of mothers in the 6,400 IU group were equivalent in their vitamin D status to infants receiving supplementation with 400 IU a day. These findings negate and I repeat, negate the premise that human milk is deficient in vitamin D. These findings suggest an alternative to infant vitamin D supplementation during lactation. And when you think about it, um, 400 IU a day for a baby who weighs 3 kilos, that's the AAP recommendation, is 133 international units per kilogram. A mother is recommended to get 400 or even 600. If you if she's 65 kilograms, she's getting 6.2 international units per kilogram per day. So you do the math. So what are we going to recommend for our pregnant and lactating women? And on that note, this concept that human milk per se is deficient in vitamin D is obsolete based on these data. Women, whether a woman chooses to use sunlight or vitamin D supplementation to attain vitamin D sufficiency during lactation remains maternal preference. And strategies then to improve maternal vitamin D status will benefit not only the mother, but also her breastfeeding infant. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.